Well, welcome everybody. Uh, thanks to everybody for joining us today uh, for this uh, episode of the STR Division's Meet the Scholar series. Uh, my name is Rich McAdock and I'll be your host for today while I interview our distinguished scholar, uh, my very old friend, Russ Koff, whom I met way back in 1997 at the Academy of Management in San Diego. Uh, and uh, uh, we've, uh, uh, we've, so we've known each other a long time. We've co-authored, we've uh, worked together, we've been colleagues. Um, and uh, it's really a great honor and privilege to uh, have the opportunity to interview Russ today. So welcome everybody. Um, so let me go ahead and uh, introduce Russ. And by the way, oh, sorry, one other thing. I just did want to say thank you to the STR team, to, to Tim, Zhao, Samina, and Gwen, and anybody and everybody else involved that I'm forgetting for, uh, for organizing the Meet the Scholars series, which has been a great benefit to the entire field and for helping to uh, put together today's session in particular. Uh, so uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you. And let me introduce our guest, Russ Koff. I hope that everybody can see the screen that I'm sharing. Uh, I see a nod or two, so I'm, I'm gonna take that as a yes. <clears throat> so Russ uh, serves as the Thomas Falk Distinguished Chair in Business and former Senior Associate Dean and Acting Dean at University of Wisconsin. Uh, he was previously at uh, Emory University, where I recruited him in, uh, I guess it was, what, 1998 or something like that, or 97? Uh, and before that was at uh, Washington University in St. Louis for a few years. Uh, he earned his doctorate at UCLA in 1993. Uh, his research focuses mainly on strategic human capital, including investments in knowledge-based assets, capturing value from human capital-based competitive advantage, uh, I, uh, innovation under asymmetric information and uncertainty and challenges of human capital intensive mergers and acquisitions. Um, he has published 15 articles in top tier journals, uh, has over 8,400 Google Scholar citations, has won uh, uh, two of the field's uh, most prestigious awards, uh, the 2009 AMR Best Paper Award, and the two you'd want to emphasize that one. Yeah, well, actually, I want to emphasize both of these because I'm a co-winner on both of these awards. Uh, the 2009 AMR Best Paper Award and the 2007 uh, STR Division, I guess back then it was the BPS Division, Glick Best Paper Award. Uh, those were both for the same paper. Um, Authored with Rich. <laughs> got to put in a plug. Hey, I got to get something out of putting in my effort for uh -huh. up today, huh? Uh, so read that paper. It's a good paper. Um, at least other people think so who gave out these awards. Uh, he is a fellow past president and board member of SMS. Uh, he chaired the AOM STR division and also the uh, SMS's strategic human capital uh, interest group. He was uh, thankfully uh, uh, a great co-organizer with me of the Atlanta Competitive Advantage Conference, or as we called it, ACAC. Um, and he has served on numerous editorial boards, uh, including SMJ, AMR, AMJ, and Org Science. Um, uh, and uh, thank you, Gwen, for putting the citation to our paper in the chat window. Appreciate that. Uh, so he served as a co-editor of Strategic Organization 
and guest editor for the Strategic Human Capital Special Issue of Journal of Management. Uh, he has chaired six dissertation committees, um, and uh, he uh, currently runs the Carpenter Strategy Toolbox blog, which uh, includes uh, over 300 strategy teaching techniques. So uh, please join me in welcoming Russ Koff. Thank you, Rich. I am honored. Uh, I thought you were going to roast me a lot worse than that, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate oh, it. I Those of you who came for the train wreck, well, I don't know, maybe there's more to come. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, I haven't asked a question yet, man. That's Give right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I love to start these, uh, these interviews out um, by asking about, uh, you know, the, the path uh, into this uh, strange career that we call strategy professor. You may, you may not have been the 10-year-old who said, I really want to be a strategy professor when I grow up, but compared to most of us, your pathway from the work that you were doing before academia to the work that you're doing now was more direct and straightforward than most of us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I think yeah, I, I wasn't feeling that, actually. <laughs> it didn't feel, <laughs> well, I didn't mean, feel remotely straightforward. So... I had no idea that academia was going to be a, uh, a thing for me. Uh, in fact, um, uh, the year before I applied to the PhD program, I applied to the MBA program and uh, the evening MBA program and was rejected. So that tells you I really had no idea that, that uh, research was going to be my career. But uh, I was working in a consulting firm doing uh, litigation economics. Uh, we were measuring the... Um, the value of human assets acquired in mergers and acquisitions, uh, specifically for tax purposes, the buyer wanted to separate it from goodwill that was created by the transaction so that they could write it off more quickly. At the time, you could write off goodwill over 50 years, and they wanted an accelerated amortization schedule to write off. Uh, you know, when you're buying a service company, a huge portion of the uh, of the value of the transaction exceeds the, um, the purchase price. And that just becomes goodwill. So uh, in essence, as a consultant, uh, I was engaged in the depreciation of people. <laughs> I know you think you're supposed to be appreciating people, but I was involved in depreciating them. Uh, and it occurred to me then that um, you know our accounting system was set up uh, just to um, uh, it was distorting the reality. All expenditures associated with people are treated as expenses. And mm. by definition, in accounting terms, an expense is something that has no value beyond the current counting period. Right. And so it's, it just wasn't possible and still isn't possible, frankly, in, in accounting terms uh, to treat people as assets. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, the, the next year I did apply to the PhD program, and, uh, but I applied in uh, the human resource management area, um, kind of looking at, uh, I didn't actually, at UCLA, uh, what might be thought of as a management um, department uh, was split into four separate departments where sometimes if the faculty passed each other in the hall, <laughs> they wouldn't say hi to each other. So right. it was very separated. And I ended up in the wrong, in effect, in the long run, the wrong department for me. 
I was I thought I was strategic HR, but when I started talking about mergers and acquisitions and bid premia and uh, medium of exchange and stuff like that to HR people, they were like, and why is that HR? Um, <laughs> right. And I, I was just kind of fortunate that um, I, I realized that uh, where the strategy field was moving, there was an opportunity to to recast my work in that area. Um, I was lucky, but I was also clueless. Well, I mean, it was a, it was so uh, you poo pooed my point about the there being a kind of a straight line direct connection, but you were valuing human resources. Val you were valuing strategic human capital, right? In your previous job, that was your job was to put a value on strategic. Human that capital. was my job, and and, so and that by the way illustrates that it is fun is a very practical problem. This is an applied problem. This is something managers have to deal with. Um, yeah. So did you, um, so I'm going to guess that you came into the PhD program with your dissertation topic in mind. Is that right? Mm, I had some idea, but no, I didn't really have the topic. Um, and, and if I had the topic, it would not have taken me seven years to complete the, the program. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Anyway, seven years at UCLA was the average and I was average in every way. <laughs> So uh, okay, so so tell us the story about how you uh, how you came onto this topic. How did you find this dissertation topic that you did? First of all, just maybe just remind us what the dissertation topic was, what the research question was, and then oh, tell I, us how you found it. So uh, I was interested in uh, given. So there's an accounting side of it, and as a consultant, that's what I was focused on: the valuation of of the human assets in M and A. So, you know, one could have explored this in accounting. And in fact, my advisor had a dual appointment in the accounting department uh, at UCLA. Um, I was more interested in the fact that buyers don't have this information than I was in how to provide this information to them. Mm. And so, you know, I came to that. I didn't know that that's what I was going to do, but I came to that gradually saying, well, what's the right question to ask here? And the, the, it seemed like the question was, um, wow, this is really hard information to gather. Um, my consulting projects were in the context of brokerage firms. And in, in the context of brokerage firms, every broker is a profit center. You can trace the revenue right to the broker and you know, with reasonable um, accuracy, uh, not only that, you know that if the broker leaves, the client may follow the broker. We now right. have work, Deepak, uh, Samaya, and others have looked at, um, you know, people uh, following, uh, clients following professionals. Uh, that was clearly a factor. And that's actually how we separated the value of the human asset from goodwill. Um, so is, is looking at whether clients would, uh, would follow the brokers. Well, in most cases, you don't have that direct a, a, a revenue trail to specific individuals. And so the story right. in most acquisitions really is we don't have this information more than we have this information. How can we just calculate it? Right. And in the case of the brokerage firms, there, there was minimal spillover across people in terms of the, the value that they brought, right? That was pretty... That's right. right. It, it wasn't really team production. I mean, it's, that isn't to say there wasn't, uh, you know, a back office that was that was important. True. But it but really the, was not the for the brokers. relationships. Right. Yeah. For the brokers, it was pooled interdependence, as, as Thompson would have said. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 
right. so um so it actually took me a while and it was really hard to find the data i mean these days uh, I, I work with what is, in essence, uh, the early version of the SDC M&A database, and they weren't used to working with academics. And when they saw my data request, they said, well, that'll be $20,000, and $20,000 back then actually meant something. Uh, there was just no way. <laughs> so how did you overcome that obstacle? I pared down what, what my data request was. Uh, so it's by today's standards, you know, it was a small data set, ultimately. Right. So, uh, okay, so you found this, uh, this dissertation topic. Uh, you, you, so it sounds like the, the biggest challenge in finding the dissertation topic was framing, right? You knew that there was this issue that uh, there's this information asymmetry between the buyers and the sellers in the M&A about the value of human, strategic human capital in the firm. Um, and so the question was, you know, what, what's the, well, the question was, what's the question about that? What was the question to ask about that? And you said, well, what's not so much, how do we, how do we fix that problem for the buyers, but, uh, what's the consequences of that problem for the buyers and for the sellers, right? So, um, so what, what, uh, other than the, the, the expense of, uh, $20,000 for price tag for data, what other, what other, um, uh, challenges did you face in, in the dissertation project? Well, like like everybody, there was a lot of manual coding. Um, the the database has has information on advisors. Some of my hypotheses had to do with uh, the number and nature of the advisors employed to to deal with the asymmetric information. So I used human capital largely as a proxy for asymmetric information in the transaction. And, uh, and so there's plenty of theory about asymmetric information that I could borrow and, and bring into that context. And advisors, you, you know, the, the data still are not very good on, on advisors in M&A transactions, but it's a lot better than it used to be. So, you know, challenges were sort of bringing it in, combining databases, I, usual stuff, I guess. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, so, uh, so tell us a little bit about the the, the transition that you've made from the work that you were doing then to what you're doing now. What what pivots have taken place along the way? What changes have you made? What uh, what new interests have you have you uh, uh, developed? What old interests have you dropped? Tell us a little bit about your 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 pathway from 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 dissertation rust to 2021 rust. I, uh, where to begin? Um, I, uh, I guess I would frame it as it was a process of unlearning. Um, there's there's a lot of assumptions in the literature in in theory that over time that I was making that, that over time I have realized um, these are not realistic assumptions. In fact, they're radically unrealistic assumptions. Um, and so then the 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 question is, well, if these are unrealistic assumptions, then um, you know, what are, how does the world actually work? You know, in some sense, uh, what we want to understand is, is how the world works. And if, and our theory, you know, I recognize theory is uh, by definition, an abstraction from reality. It needs to be parsimonious, um, but then it needs to identify the most critical factors and, and it should have predictive validity at some point. And at some point, I realized that some of the things we were relying on the most, like firm specificity, 
um, were absolutely not the way the world was working. And I was like everybody else. I was, uh, you know, relying on, on that theory. So for me, it's been a journey to unlearn things that I think I took for granted early on. Right. And I think you've told me and others the story about when you first started teaching strategy, that there was some unlearning involved there, or at least some, some revelation involved there that may have led you to, to pursue the kind of uh, early theory papers that you developed, your AMR paper and your, um, what was the other one? So, uh, yeah. So I, I guess, uh, um, you know, for people looking for research ideas, uh, let, let me say that they are uh, kind of all around you and you, you have to recognize a research idea when it bites you on the nose and, and uh, be open to it because it might not be the way you were thinking about the world. Um, so my very first paper, um, as a young scholar, I was teaching the resource-based view um, and I, I ended a class of undergraduates. I ended a class with a sentence that read something like, um, so in conclusion, uh, to gain a, a competitive advantage, firms should invest in resources that are causally ambiguous, firm specific and socially complex, which is you know, pretty much drawn from the resource-based view. And my undergraduates wrote that crap down. Um, but I walked away saying, oh my God, how can you, you can't tell a manager to invest in resources that are causally ambiguous. They, they just laugh at you. There's just no way invest in resources that I cannot link to performance. Absolutely not. There is just no way. And, and so it became clear that there was not just a small hole, but like a major hole um, in, in our thinking about what are the practical implications of our theory, because you really had to solve a host of problems. How do you acquire resources that are like that? How do you integrate them? How do you manage them when there are tremendous information asymmetry problems. And, and human capital was a special case where you couldn't own the resource. Therefore, uh, there were property rights kinds of issues, uh, control kinds of issues. Uh, if that was gonna be a source of competitive advantage, you really had to address just a host of problems uh, that uh, we didn't really have theory kind of focused around. Um, so I was teaching and, and you know there it was. Uh, I, I said something that I couldn't defend, but I, 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 you know, and so just pay attention when you're teaching forces you to recognize what, where the holes are in, in uh, what we do. I love that story. I love that story. And, you know, one of the things that I love about it is it highlights the tension in the theory between, um, uh, between uh, imitation and appropriation, right? Uh, that the things that, that, that help a firm in terms of imitability uh, or non-imitability also hurt it in terms of appropriation. And that's most clear with human capital, but I don't think it's unique to human capital. I think there's other, other ways that that plays out as well. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think your, your point is well taken that at that point, uh, the field was way you know, in, in terms of the balance between imitation and appropriation, it was way out of balance, right? The, the field was way over-focused on imitation and way under-focused on appropriation. And, uh, and those are competing threats and there's a trade-off there. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful service that you did to the field to highlight that trade-off. 
Um, I'm not sure if there's a question there, but if you if you have a response, uh, let me know. Well, you know, obviously, I focused a lot on on appropriation, um, and uh, <clears throat> again, if if you're if you're acknowledging that human assets might be a significant source of competitive advantage, then it really pushes you to recognize that they may be in a that people may be in a position to appropriate value. So it really pushed that question of of who appropriates value. And, and I want to take it a step further because um, we as strategy scholars take for granted that we understand certain terms and we use them loosely all the time. Yeah. Um, and so this pushed me to, to uh, you know, some of the terms that I don't think we understand. Here's one, firm. What is a firm? Uh, and human capital really pushes that, I mean, to, maybe to the extreme because, um, uh, most strategy scholars would would look at value that's appropriated by employees as value that's not appropriated by the firm. Um, but if that's true, then who is allowed to appropriate the value? Because firms don't appropriate value. It all is going to go to some individual. So if it's not going to go to employees, and you're you're not going to sort of acknowledge that in that case, employees are in fact part of the firm. Um, then you're you're really probably going to be saying, well, it's it's actually shareholders then. Um, but in these days, most people will not um, align. Most people don't align formally with sort of shareholder primacy arguments. But then they're not aware that this appropriation, you know, issue that they're taking the the position of of shareholder primacy. Uh, you know, even in that in that context, it's uh, how these things are connected maybe is, is uh, not everybody is, is thinking about it. But in fact, what we are doing is treating employees as external suppliers. So in the, in the five forces model, they're not part of the firm. They're actually these external suppliers, which if, they, if the firm was going out on the spot market, hiring new workers on the street every single day, then that actually would be the case. I would buy that. But when we're talking about internal labor markets, um, we should be acknowledging, you know, what stakeholders, I mean, that's, you know, micro foundations 101, who, who is it that is a stakeholder of the firm that is actually part of the firm? And I, I don't think we've sort of addressed that fully. Right. I mean, there are, you're right. There are a lot of terms that, um, that, uh, that we, you know, we use very loosely that we don't define um you know like competitive uh, advantage competitive advantage is a great <laughs> you're going to come to that eventually <laughs> competitive advantage is a great one um and you know i know a lot of a lot of interesting work is being done now on on trying to nail down a better uh definition of competitive advantage uh including by some of the people here on this call so um but there's uh that also reminds me you know i, I when when you said we use these terms uh, uh, loosely without maybe even thinking about what they mean. And you talked about human capital. I thought, gee, I wonder if human is one of those terms, you know, because these days, you know, we used to draw this distinction between uh, tacit knowledge and explicit knowledge and codified knowledge and that sort of thing. But these days, human knowledge through machine learning can be captured without being codified, right? And we, you know, we have these models that that, that can do what people can do without knowing how they're doing it, you know? So I don't know, perhaps a, perhaps a research idea for someone out there. So it's funny that you should mention that actually, um, 
my brother's on this call and I have, and he's also a co-author. Um, oh yeah, and, hi David. And, uh, <laughs> and we have an AMR together because he was uh, selling to a customer, he worked at AT&T, he was selling um, a, a um, technology to a customer that allowed their knowledge workers to um, extend their knowledge electronically without codifying it. And he told me about this customer and I was like, you know, in our knowledge literature, it's all focused on you have to codify the knowledge in order to um, scale it up, in order to, to transfer it. And we have this codification problem that if we codify it, then it's available and can be imitated. So, you know, that's a really important question in our literature. And here, from his standpoint, it was a very practical problem. He was providing the service to his customer on how to extend the knowledge and actually uh, the solution created more codified knowledge or more uh, tacit knowledge than existed before the technology was applied. So, you know, there it was just contradicting our literature and, you know, you just have to recognize when these things bite you. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So I think that's, that's been a consistent theme of yours in your work is just looking for- I, I'm those. lucky that I have been bitten a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I used to think of Russ's work as being kind of the dark side of X, you know, fill in the blank for X. But actually it's more like, um, you know, the, the surprise, the surprises that, that we encounter that, uh, that, call, that call BS. I was gonna say something different there. That call BS on our theory, yeah. Where you know where the where the real world calls BS on it. So I noticed that we do have one uh, question in the chat window from Sushant, um, and it reminds me of uh, uh, that. Uh, so so Sushant is asking since it took some took you some time to find your 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 dissertation topic. Can you also talk a bit about the role of your advisor in that process? Now I know of course that from our earlier conversations that. Uh, you had a little bit of a challenge in assembling a, a dissertation committee and a set of advisors. So perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit about this issue of the role of, of advisors and committee members in your uh, in your the de development of your dissertation ideas. Um, I'll try not to throw anybody under the bus. I <laughs> I had uh, so so I, I didn't realize that I was a strategy scholar. So I created a uh, a dissertation committee that was in the the HR industrial relations department at UCLA, which was largely labor econ. That's the, so there was a separate department for organizational behavior separate from HR industrial relations. So this really was labor economists. And uh, I had somebody from the law school who did MA. I had uh, Lynn Zucker in, in the sociology department. I had nobody from the strategy department at UCLA because I didn't know that's where I was. Um, and I, I went to, uh, at one point, I went to Bill Ochi, who was uh, the director of the PhD program. And uh, I, I said, hey, you know, you've expressed some interest in this, in the project I'm working on. Um, I'm realizing that I'm, I'm a bit more of a, a strategy scholar than an HR scholar, or at least I'm bridging. Uh, would you be interested in being on my committee? And he looked at who else was on my committee and said, well, it seems to me that you have enough personalities on your committee. You don't need me. <laughs> um, so, so I went without that. Uh, then I went on the, I did go on the job market. I failed on the job market as an HR person. I mean, completely failed. 
And the next year I went out on the job market as a strategy person, but not from the strategy department, which is awkward. Um, they didn't all know me. Um, and so I, um, this is, I, I will tell all of my embarrassing stories because I can laugh at them now at the time it wasn't hilarious. Um, I, I sent an, a memo around to all of the strategy faculty uh, saying, um, you know, here's who I am. This is what I do. Um, this is why it fits with strategy. I'm not asking for your recommendation, but I'm hoping that if you have a colleague that calls you from another school and asks you about me, that you won't say, we don't have a student by that name. <laughs> And, and Marvin Lieberman still, he sees me and he busts up because he, that's the funniest thing he's ever seen. <laughs> Tells you a lot about people's senses of humor there. But, uh, you know, it, I was lost. I, I can't emphasize that enough. I was very lost. Yeah, I can understand that, you know. Um, yeah. Figuring out where the tribe that you belong to you know, is, is a big challenge for people in the early stages. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to Bill Lucci's point about, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, why he, he uh, declined to sit on the, your committee, I think he, there is some wisdom there. I had a, uh, 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 a, uh, a classmate who was one year ahead of me in the PhD program who gave me this one piece of advice on forming a dissertation committee. He said, when two dogs fight over a bone, the bone loses. So, uh, yeah. You, you, yeah, I have no doubt that he did me a big favor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might still be working on that dissertation now. I might. <laughs> I might. The, this, the end of the statistical tale, so I told you I was completely average. Uh, the end of the statistical tale was 13 years. Ouch. Whew. And, and that person finished? Yes. He wow. did, and he must have had a good, he was a Remelt student. He must have had seven, eight different dissertation ideas. He just, uh, you know, never, you know, dissertations are like roller coasters, right? You always have those low points, and the question is whether you keep your idea or whether you jump to the next car, and he kept jumping. Ah, uh, see, now, it's interesting, because uh, Tim, I know, is on the call, and he just recently posted a video on the STR channel about precisely that topic one of the STR Nuggets series about this question of, do you, do you jump ship or do you, uh, you know, do you hang tight? And uh, I think he's got some really good advice in that video. So anybody who, for whom that, that point resonates, uh, if you're on this call or, or watching this video, if that point resonates with you, go ahead and watch Tim's, uh, Tim's STR Nugget video. It's really good. Um, so, uh, okay. So we talked a little bit about earlier about what, um, what your uh, areas of, of research are. Oh, and I see, thank you, uh, Zhao, putting the, the link to that, uh, uh, that video in the chat window. And thanks to Gwen for putting the, the references to all of Russ's papers in the chat window. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do this question from Allie. Uh, Allie is asking, uh, what do you say to students today uh, with regard to the whole VRIO framework instead of, you know, uh, instead of what you were saying uh, back when you first started teaching uh, undergraduate strategy and, and found yourself not believing what you were saying. So what do you say instead? Um, you know, I, I, I'm more prone to talk about the, 
you know, what are the management challenges that you have to face in order to uh, both acquire and um, and manage resources um, that fit these sort of profiles that we think are so important. And I think you know the strategic factor market literature um, has expanded on that. There is an understanding in that literature, I think a nice understanding that there are likely to be information asymmetries and it might be hard to find, if you will, kind of a bargain. Uh, in that literature, and of course, you know your work fits nicely uh, in in looking at that. Um, I think we still have a ways to go to understand sort of the management challenges associated with with you know creating value with the kinds of resources that we say are hard to imitate. Um, I I think that's um, a, a challenge that that there's more to do in that area. And you know, I do my best to acknowledge that yeah, there's going to be some challenges. Uh, it, it does uh, highlight some of the standard, some of the HR challenges that um, uh, exist anyway in in the HR literature. You know, how do you identify top performers? Is you know, a, it's a fundamental problem that already exists, except that they might not have linked that problem to the kinds of resources that are associated with the resource-based view. So something that is a fundamental problem in the literature, but not necessarily acknowledged as being a strategic problem, I would say it is in fact a strategic problem. Good point. Uh, yeah, because these, these, these questions do spill across fields, obviously. Um, so you kind of anticipated the next question that I was going to ask in, 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 in your answer to that last question. Uh, because you, you said that more work needed to be done on how to create and capture value from resources that are difficult to imitate. Um, so the, the question I was going to ask is, uh, within your field of expertise, within the topic area that you study, which is you know, strategic human capital um, and uh, human capital intensive M&A, information asymmetry and uncertainties effect on innovation, um, <clears throat> what do you think are the most important unanswered questions uh, in that uh, topic area? What, um, what do we not know about those topics that we really should know by now? So, so I see that uh, Joe put my paper with uh, uh, Ben and, and DK. We refer to ourselves as the Oreo team, but I'll, I'll leave that aside how that came about. Um, I, I think you know the, uh, working with them was uh, began sort of a journey where I you know was looking hard at some of the things that we took for granted, like the role of firm specificity in in um, value creation and value capture. There was sort of an assumption of what that was, uh, drawn from kind of neoclassical Becker esque um, theory. Um, and what we started to realize is uh, over time is that, well, firm specificity doesn't actually work that way in actual markets. Uh, at least rarely it does. I mean, there, there have to be boundary conditions on this uh, that uh, it's very hard to observe firm specificity and the notion that labor markets price it appropriately, which is embedded in that theory, really didn't make sense. So we were assuming our, our field was assuming um, uh, a level of market efficiency in labor markets 
that we would not, because we're all about sort of market failures. So we were, we would not have assumed that level of, of market efficiency in, in other kinds of markets. So why would we think labor markets are, are that efficient that they would price what might be tacit knowledge uh, appropriately? Uh, and that, and, and, you know, on the top of, of that, because, you know, I, I, in my standard sort of process is to look at, at um, how are practitioners looking at these problems? And I got to tell you, HR professionals, they do not recognize firm specificity as a hazard. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody that's long tenured is somebody that has a stable employment history. They want people like that. Um, it's, it's, and it'll take you a while to explain firm specificity to, to HR people because it's not a problem they worry about. Um, so, but 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 to, but you know, to, in all fairness, it's not their job to worry about, right? Well, it, it is their job to to pay people, uh, and and get a marginal productivity that that meets or exceeds what they're paying them. And if and and if the theory was right that that uh, people in fact are uh, who have firm specific knowledge and firm specific skills are less productive at other firms, mm -hmm. then that would be really relevant for them. Um, they don't think that way uh, for the most part. And I think they're right. Uh, on the whole, I think they're right. And partly because there's so much noise in trying to measure firm specificity that you would be introducing a whole lot of noise into your decision and it could make your decision worse. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you asked me, you know, what, what do I think, uh, you know, needs to happen going forward? Well, that journey brought me to this question of, uh, well, what we thought was true doesn't seem to be how the world works in terms of, you know, what, uh, I, I still would acknowledge, by the way, that firm specificity is important for firms that have to have idiosyncratic capabilities. For a unique capability to exist in one firm, there must be knowledge that's unique to that firm. It's just that I don't think that the labor markets work that way, pricing it that way that, that the, the theory was kind of assuming. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that what we thought was the case, the link between human capital and, um, and competitive ad advantage is probably not what the initial theory said it was. Um, the, the Oreo team, we tried to, to untangle that a bit. I would not say that we succeeded. I mean, I think we took a, a first step in that area, but I think the conclusion that I would come to is, um, well, we tore down what, what was kind of a straw man theory that existed in the literature. So what do we replace it with? And we tried, but I, I actually think that there is uh, a lot of work to do to sort of figure out, well, if we think human capital is critical for competitive advantage, uh, the 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 straw man theory doesn't work. We have a lot of building to do. Good point. Good point. Um, I, I have kind of a related but perhaps a tangential question. Um, so your work was, I think, some of the first work in the field of strategy to deal with this topic of strategic human capital. Was it? What was there? Was it the first work? Was there anybody else doing research on strategic human capital before you came along? So yeah, sure, of course. Um, I mean, there were, I, I would say most, there were, so 
strategic HR was certainly an area. Right. Um, and that's what I thought I was at the time. Um, but I, I guess what I would say is what I discovered when I went on the job market is that uh, strategic HR was defined as stuff that goes on in an HR department right. to support a strategy that comes exogenously from above. Right. Um, that's, so in some that's sense, an HR said, topic rather than a strategy topic. Yeah. So in some sense, it said uh, anything that's interesting, we don't do it <laughs> is, 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 from my standpoint anyway. But within um, the I, strategy literature. I mean. I, I, yeah, I don't think it's that way now, just to be clear. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, there, there were people in the strategy literature before, certainly before me, that were acknowledging that human capital was an important a source of competitive advantage. In fact, yeah, that, was, that was quite central, I think, in the emergence of the resource-based view is to acknowledge that, that uh, the kinds of assets that the resource-based view was focused on were bound to involve people. Um, so absolutely, there was work. Um, You're right. And I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassing myself because I'm forgetting Connie's paper. You know, Castanius and Connie Martin. had a paper in, right. yeah, 92, I think, 91, 92. Apologies for forgetting that. Um, before that, even Hall had a paper looking at, uh, you know, types of sort of a typology of, of uh, human capital. Um, I, I think if I were to say what, what did I do that was different is, is um, coming back to that dark side that you mentioned earlier is to say, well, you're not going to have a competitive advantage from human capital unless you sort of address these kinds of fundamental problems associated with it. Right. So, so the question I was going to ask then is, Okay, so you weren't the, the very first person to study strategic human capital within the strategy field, but you were definitely a pioneer, one of the very first pioneers. <clears throat> what, what are the challenges that you faced as <clears throat> a pioneer of a, of a brand new subfield? What kind of challenges did you have to overcome and, and how did you overcome those? So, so that kind of gets at Samina's question too um, in the chat. I, I think, um, so, a key question is who is your audience, right? Uh, I, I have borrowed from Jay the ABC approach uh, to writing introductions. Many of you have heard me talk about that. I see David as Krasinski is, is like falling off his chair because he's heard it so many times. Um, but the, you know, the first question is who is your audience? And if there aren't a lot of people doing human capital work in the strategy field, who is your audience? Uh, and it turns out that my first publication, the uh, it, at AMR, it, it uh, was taken by a strategic HR editor who then sent it to three, um, three reviewers who were from the strategic HR field. And I was using um, terms that were fundamentally strategy oriented uh, to identify the problems associated with human capital. And so I was talking about things like moral hazard and adverse selection, which are you know, economic terms for, for these, uh, you know, probably most of you are pretty familiar with those terms uh, that would be associated with information asymmetries in, in labor markets and, and within firms, those kinds of things. And I had to, with the reviewers, build a, a translation table because the, oh. the language was sort of a barrier to, to talking to them. They were interested in the topic, but, but you know, uh, moral hazard problems became um, a discussion of motivation. Um, and, and it's interesting because there's an attribution there. So uh, 
when you use the term moral hazard, you're basically saying the agent is misbehaving. Mm -hmm. When you use the term motivation problem, um, which is more associated with the, the uh, HR literature, you're basically saying the principal put in place a really stupid incentive system. <laughs> and it's, there's a blame game there. Whose fault is it? We have a stupid, we have a, you know, an agent uh, who's misbehaving or we have a principal who didn't know what they're doing, but our behavioral assumptions are the same. And so with the reviewers, I kind of had to build, you know, that kind of language bridge um, so my early audience was ended up being on the HR side, I think, uh, at least for that. Um, but that surprised me because I certainly didn't write the paper initially for HR people, not with that language. Right. So so finding the audience and <clears throat> and translating the ideas for that audience, and then um, <clears throat> and and but those those reviewers from strategic HR perhaps were not the ultimate audience for your for your work, right? Because your work was more ultimately aimed for the strategy field. So there so, is an audience there. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I mean, I, I was aiming for the strategy field and I ended up, uh, you know, getting some HR folks, you know, I hope HR folks interested in this, in some of the questions, part of what I wanted HR people to realize is some things that they don't think of as strategic are in fact, very strategic. Mm. So you want, you want to elaborate on that? Like what things? Well, like, like these motivation problems. Well, motivation is a fundamental issue in the, in the uh, OB and HR literature. Uh, incentives are a fundamental issue in those literatures, but they might not, the, the strategic HR literature was not focused on that problem. That was considered sort of an operational problem. Mm. But, but once we take into account the kind of assets that strategy is focused on, well, it's, it's a whole lot more strategic. Right. Okay. So you you had to translate your your strategy thinking for the for the for that audience in strategic HR. But how did you get traction for your work within the strategy field? Was there was there any um, is there uh, traction special uh, challenge? I, I would say eight thousand citations is traction. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it grew over time. I think uh, what what happened is there were other other scholars that were interested in these kinds of questions. Um, and to an extent, they were uh, a little bit lost, not quite as lost as me, but a little bit lost. Um, I, I wanna say, so, you know, you mentioned the uh, Strategic Human Capital Interest Group at, at right. SMS. Um, I gotta give some credit to Jay. Uh, Jay tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I think we need uh, a, a home for Strategic Human Capital uh, would you would you do this um, and uh, and help us get started? And uh, our effort, we made a concerted effort to sort of reach out to HR people. Um, it was somewhat successful, not as successful as I might have hoped, but we got some great people um, in in that way, and it, it highlighted it also for strategy people who were interested in those questions. Yeah, and I think you know you. You deserve a lot of credit for stepping up and and taking responsibility for that whole initiative and and um, you know the the strategic HR interest group in, in SMS is I think one of the most active and and uh, um, vibrant uh, interest groups in in SMS. <clears throat> They've got a great website. I'll just put a plug in for their website that that has a, a wonderful 
um, review of the uh, of the strategic human capital literatures on various different topics. I've, I always I've often recommended that website uh, uh, and its literature review to doctoral students who are interested in that topic. You know what I think they've done really well is is uh, mentoring junior scholars um, has kind of they they have kind of deep mentoring like year long mentoring groups um, that are are just awesome. Uh, I think we need more of that, especially as we're sort of isolated, uh, which obviously we hope that ends soon. But yes, <clears throat> yeah. So I mean, I think there's good lessons here in terms of, you know, if you're pioneering. Uh, a new research topic, you have to be willing to put in some effort to do some institution building. And, uh, and I think uh, that's been, that's been uh, a great contribution that you've made to the field. Um, so why don't we take a pause here and uh, give Zhao her chance to uh, take her group photo that she needs for uh, spreading the word on Twitter and other social media platforms. Right, so everyone, if you could just turn on your camera for a second and show us your beautiful smile. Uh, I'll call one, two, three. One, two, three. Got it, thank you. Okay, Back to you, Rich. Thank you all for, for participating in that. Um, okay. So um, let me see. Uh, I've got a couple more questions I could go to. Zhao, give me some idea of how much time I've got left. And where are we, uh, we have uh, 38 minutes until the end of the session. 38 minutes. Okay, sure. Um, so let me maybe uh, just ask one more question before I kind of throw it open to the um, to the uh, assembled hordes here. Um, so uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, Russ, you, you have mentored um, uh, numerous doctoral students and uh, you know, I think including uh, being, I think I said, I don't remember, it's like six or something that you were advisor to, primary advisor to. Um, what's, what's the most important piece of advice that you give to your own doctoral students? Um, I, I think probably the most important piece of advice, um, which I draw from the, the resource-based view, is to uh, leverage your own unique background, your unique experience, to find problems. So in some sense, most, most if not all of my problems have been found because I've looked around me, I've had prior experience, you kind of have highlighted those aspects of the story. When I uh, meet with doctoral students, even you know, when they apply to our program, um, I wanna hear about their work experience. I wanna hear um, you know, what is unique. So uh, I have a, a student who finished last year, um, Buki, is now at, uh, at UT Austin. Um, she's an architect, a licensed architect. And so I encouraged her to explore that. Well, I, I, you know, physical space is not something that strategy scholars have explored all that much, but it seems obvious that it's a complementary asset to human capital. People will, their productivity and teams productivity can vary widely depending on the physical layout um, of an organization. And it's, it's not a, an area that has zero research around it. It has research, just not really mostly amongst strategy scholars. Um, and she had this unique expertise and, and the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the lens. And I guess what I would say is from a resource-based standpoint, 
your unique perspective um, is what you bring to the literature when you read a paper that helps you see something that the previous person who read the same article didn't see. You see an opportunity that, that somebody else didn't see. So understanding what's unique about your own lens, I think is, is a, a starting point to, to identifying interesting problems. And, and so it's clear that you preach what you practice. I try. <laughs> Good. So um, uh, I see we have uh, at least one unanswered question in the chat. Uh, why don't I let uh, Jasmine ask her question? Oh, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the information that both of you have given, given us so far. I think it's so cool to hear from people who have, I mean, I went for a BA in economics and both of y'all like have a BA in economics, for example, Dr. Koff in psychology. And then uh, Dr. McAdock, I mean, you're coming from that economics and mathematics backgrounds. So that's just so cool to uh, be able to talk to people who have expanded and done so well in this area of strategic management. But um, I guess stemming from this, I mean, um, being a young uh, person in academia, I just see this changing world around me and it's looking like really interesting and sometimes scary, right? So I was wondering, how do you think that uh, human capital strategies in higher education specifically might be impacted by these recent events and phenomena? And do you think that these changes could be beneficial or harmful for the future of um, academics, maybe like hopefully myself one day? Well, we're, we're in an interesting world right now, um, Jasmine. And I, I think um, uh, there, there are so many moving parts uh, to, to the question in some sense, because the change that's hitting us is hitting us from so many different angles, right? Um, I think some of it represents opportunities for us. So, you know, if, if you haven't noticed already, there, there will be a wave of people using COVID as an identification strategy, um, you know, coming forward, and, and it will be a pretty effective one in many cases. So, uh, you know, uh, people see those opportunities. Um, it has highlighted the role of diversity, which um, as strategy scholars, um, you know, we need to take diversity seriously and recognize that, uh, uh, you know, we are we tend to be focused on diversity in in the form of um, diverse expertise. I, as a human capital scholar, am focused on mostly diverse expertise. But the the world that we live in requires us to look at diversity much more broadly and and uh, and acknowledge, um, you know, how does that play out in organizations? If you have an R and D team that is diverse in in the you know, racial or gender sense, what's, what is the implication of that for research productivity? And, you know, I think we see some exploration of that, but, you know, in, the, in this world, I think it's, it's a especially critical. So there's opportunities, I think. Um, it's, it's, uh, so there's, there's challenges too, I think. Um, I, I, I love to see um, you know, how STR has, has responded, SMS as well, but, you know, uh, Samina is here and Samina has done some amazing stuff and, and the rest of the STR team has done some amazing stuff. I'm really excited about what's been happening at STR to support people, to sort of help people, bring people forward. Uh, CCC has taken steps to, to help scholars. Um, I hope that sticks. The notion that we should um, help each other um, is, is uh, 
maybe that can change the culture of the field a little bit. Uh, so, and I, I hope it does. Um, so, you know, that's where I'm at with that, I think. I'm not sure if I fully answered your question, but you got me to ramble, so nice job. <laughs> As if that's hard. So um, I see uh, David uh, DK. I, I'm still not used to calling him DK. I've always called him David, but I see uh, that uh, DK has uh, put some comments in the chat window. Uh, the you know the chat window will be lost to history. So I wanted to uh, ask him if he could uh, maybe uh, speak up and, uh, and 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 give his comments on the video so that we preserve them for uh, for 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 history here. Sure. I, I just, uh, the, the question a, a little bit about go about best advice that Russ gives to doctoral students. And, uh, and so I just put in some of the best advice that I've gotten from Russ, uh, some of it spoken and some of it unspoken. And, um, so the first one is that good ideas are worth sticking with and, 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 and seeing through. And so some of my ideas that were good ideas, but that I was never quite capable of, doing on my own, Russ has just encouraged me over many, many, many years to help me develop those ideas and push them forward. And, and now after many years, starting to see success with those ideas that I don't know that I would have had the confidence to, to do without that sort of persistent pushing from, uh, from an advisor. And uh, number two, being a good human is powerful and transformational. And I think this is, you know, Russ is just a good human. And, and so it's, it's uh I, I've seen that effect in my life, but also in the in the lives of the people that Russ is around. That just I only turn human on a full moon, just to be clear. False, false <laughs> statement. Um, and uh, and when I was getting ready to go on the job market, Russ's advice to me was have fun, have fun, and have fun. And I was stressed out and and worried, and and he just said, "You'll never again have an opportunity when people will invest so much in your work. So just go and enjoy that." And, and put your best foot forward, put your work out there and enjoy the opportunity to have great conversations with people. And that changed the way that I approached the job market. And it, it wasn't fun, but I was able to have fun uh, in giving the talks and having great conversations with smart people who are investing in my research. I thought that was great advice. And then the, the last one, which is kind of tongue in cheek is, is who's the audience again? Because I've heard that question more than any other question in my life. Uh, in, in talking to Russ about research ideas, but, but great advice. See, it just goes to show sometimes uh, you don't even know what the best advice is that you're giving. Uh, you know, it takes the other side to, to hear what the, you know, hear, to identify what the best advice is sometimes. Uh, thanks, to, thanks, DK. Um, so I see here we have a question from Abby Mulek. Abby, you wanna uh, unmute and ask your question? Sure. Uh I think this question is really, in some ways, a follow-up to Jasmine's question. Um, so I remember Henry Mintzberg often taking offense to the term capital in human capital. And I was just curious if you have any reflections on that. Sure. Um, so I, I've run into that. Uh, you know, obviously, my background is largely in economics. Uh, my approach is largely coming from economics. But remember that even before that, my approach was from accounting, right? Uh, and so I use the term asset. Um, I, some people uh, have, particularly on the sociology side, have taken issue with, with the, the term human asset or human capital as though it refers to slavery. Um, to, to me, um, it highlights 
again, coming from the, uh, you know, the accounting perspective where it's, where actually people are literally an expense. <laughs> and so, so being an asset is so much better than just being an expense, <laughs> um, if, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and, and the other thing that I would say is, is that um, the term asset highlights the, the boundary conditions on, um, you know, it's, I, I'm obviously not referring to ownership, um, but I am referring to um, control. And control highlights sort of the, um, the zone of indifference. What is the extent to which um, the organization uh, can motivate people to act in, in a coordinated fashion uh, to, to create value? Um, and it's not that, and because they're not owned, it means that they, uh, that you have to explore the extent to which you're able to, to gain cooperation uh, from people. So, I don't take in, I understand that, that for some people, it's sort of a political issue that human capital and human asset bring to mind, you know, uh, ownership of people. Uh, clearly, I don't mean that. Um, but, but then it, it does highlight, so what are the limitations? How does it compare to other assets that organizations can have? And, and the alternative to asset, again, to me is expense, and that's just way worse. Thank you. I think Rich is still muted. Uh, sorry about that. Um, I apologize. Uh, so uh, Sushant has uh, posted a question, another question. So let me ask Sushant to unmute and, uh, and ask the question. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I, I was just curious uh, because I'm having difficulties uh, matching my work with the uh, scope of coverage of journals. So I wanted to know that when you talked about choosing an audience, uh, you, do you mean uh, editorial board members or people reading the journal or management practitioners? Uh, please, your comments. So, so uh, the, the lowest level or the more, most nuanced level that you've given, I think is probably editorial board members. And that's probably the closest um, to what I would mean. What I would mean by audience is um, uh, specific individuals, identify three people who you would like to have as reviewers uh, who are writing in, in that area and what are their perspectives? What might they be offended by? What, what would they see your value uh, added, your contribution? It's nice if those people happen to be editorial board members, that helps you. <laughs> In fact, that tells you whether the journal is the right target probably uh, for your work, if, if in fact the journal has those people as, as board members. Um, but um, oftentimes I think that, that uh, doctoral students don't recognize um, how nuanced the literature is. We happen to be in a very, very fragmented field. And that means that um, some things that we take for granted have sub audiences that uh, don't talk to each other or hate each other. Um, mm -hmm. And if you think that your audience is like the readers of a journal, 
Uh, that's not nearly nuanced enough. You have to be identifying. So to take the strategic human capital side of it, uh, the, the dance that, that um, I virtually always have to address these days is that we have some people in the field who are coming at it from the strategy side, and we have some people in the, in the field who are coming at it from the HR side, and they still use different language and are a little bit uncomfortable if you use the other side's language, and they'll kill the work. If, if you get it to the wrong audience. So that's within the notion of strategic human capital. If you were thinking strategic human capital is one audience, uh, what I'm saying is there are sub audiences there and, and uh, to be successful, you really want to, to sort of aim at um, you know, very specific sub audiences to the extent that you can. So it sounds like there's still a value for that translation table that you developed for the the reviewers of your first there, paper there, there are new, there's a whole new set of terms right <laughs> so to give you an example um uh hr people often will use the term emergence to reflect the aggregation of value uh, value creation from the individual level human capital to an organization level resource mm. um to me coming more from the the economics side, I use the term complementarity, the, you know, the resources, um, uh, not just human capital, but all the resources are working in concert in some sense to create value that's greater than their individual contributions. Um, so I use one term, HR people are more likely to use the other term. I do my best not to kill their work if it comes to me and they use the term emergence. Um, right. But, but we use different terms. So here's a suggestion for you that may alleviate this problem for future strategic HR researchers. You should write a paper which you know pre presents this translation between the two fields and talks about the you know the subtleties of the of the translations in both directions, and then strategic human research research strategic human uh, capital researchers in the future can simply refer to your paper to. <laughs> help their reviewers, whichever side they're on, to understand you know, what they're trying to say. By the way, we need that in lots of areas, right? Because we use different language and we talk across each other kind of all the time. Right, I, I don't think it would be, a, I think it would be a very easy paper for you to write and one that would be very well received and would, would have a lot of value and perhaps be impactful. I, I give my PhD students um, an, an article, I'm gonna get the author order wrong, um, uh, Miller, Glick, and Cardinal on uh, what is academic life like um, in a field where the um, uh, that's highly fragmented. You know, how do you, how do you, what does your audience look like? And they start, it's really a depressing article. I have to talk students off the, off the ledge at the end of it, because it's like, you shouldn't have a family. <laughs> You, if if fairness is important to you, then this isn't the field for you. <laughs> it gets really ugly. But but the starting point is we have a fragmented paradigm in our field, and and that is an important starting point. So this this idea seems to have gotten some traction in the chat window. Samina is saying yes, start a petition to get Russ to do this. And uh, but Andrew is is asking if it wouldn't actually be an insult to people on both sides. Uh, thank you, Gwen, for posting the um, the the link to that uh, um, that article that Russ was referring to. So, um, okay, other questions from the audience. 
we have a little time for, for, for other questions. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I see Tim has a question here. Tim, you wanna chime in with your question? Ross, I don't wanna put you on the spot with this all encompassing question, but some of the issues you've alluded to, you've not alluded to, you've, you've taken on head on is uh, around human capital and, and how employees might appropriate value. And isn't it, if we're thinking about competitive advantage, shouldn't that be part of the, part of the equation? So that begs the question, you know, how do we measure competitive advantage? As strategy research, this is an important issue and it's gaining uh, increasing importance with, you know, climate change and firms being asked to step up and take, a, take hits uh, financially to attend to rather important matters. Yep. So feel free to punt on this one, but I, but uh, this is an important issue to me, and I, I just no, it's it's it. it's really critical. Uh, it's it's really critical. Um, so um, I guess first of all, I would you know because we are empirical researchers, we tend to focus on what's measurable, um, and it is not always the case. In fact, it is most of the time not the case that our theoretical constructs uh, map nicely onto what our measures are. Um, but we aren't always uh, fully aware of that. So competitive advantage in theory is about economic value. It's not about accounting value. It's not about accounting profits. Uh, it's about economic value. Um, and what does that mean? Well, uh, you know, to understand economic value, we have to have measures of all the opportunity costs of all the resources to understand how, how value are, are they being deployed in the most uh, to create the most economic value. We'll never have those kinds of measures. Um, so I guess a starting point would be well, let's understand where our theory and our measures are are not aligned. Um, one of the things that I struggle with, um, and this gets at some some of the definitional issues. We use the term firm, and then we use the term organization. And I'll tell you how I like to use those terms. I, for me, a firm is a legal entity that's defined by ownership of assets. And it's very specific. And some, some theoretical questions are very much own, are oriented around the ownership of assets. Uh, that's the most critical question. When we talk about make, or make versus buy, we want to know, are we bringing you know, a function inside of the ownership boundaries of, of the firm, if you will? And that's about a firm. Most of the literature on competitive advantage actually is not about the ownership boundaries of the firm. It is about the cooperation and coordination that needs to, to occur to create value. In other words, most of our theorizing in my thinking is about organizations where the boundary is not about whether we own the assets, the boundary is about whether we're able to achieve cooperation. So we have literatures on, and, on sort of uh, strategic alliances as a, uh, as a critical source of competitive advantage. Well, in order for us even to broach that topic, we have to acknowledge that competitive, the unit of analysis for competitive advantage might not be the legal boundaries of the firm, it might be cooperation and coordination. Um, so uh, we don't use those terms uh, with that specificity in the literature. And, and I think most of the time we don't understand 
and, and think about the distinctions between these terms. But most of our theorizing is, is about cooperation and coordination. And I think if that focuses us a little bit on, well, how do we achieve cooperation and coordination? When does it exist? When does it not exist? Um, we can't measure performance <laughs> until we sort of understand what we're talking about performance of. Mm -hmm. um, and in my thinking, most of the theory is about organization and then it's about economic value. Um, and now you, hopefully you're seeing how distant profit of a legal entity, a firm might be from economic value created by an organization that might span the legal boundaries uh, of the firm. Um, I, what I'm doing is creating a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> and, and I do that well, I create problems. Um, but I, I think um, what I want to convey is that the fact that there are these problems, there are also opportunities. It, it means that, that each of these things are, are opportunities for people to explore. So when I saw Tim's question in the chat window, <clears throat> it, it, first of all, it was phrased a little bit more pointedly than the way he phrased it when he asked it uh, 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 to you. He said, in your opinion, what should be the objective of the firm? And I thought, okay, if I'm Russ Koff, how am I going to answer that? So I put on my little Russ Koff hat and I was thinking, I was making notes in my mind. I was thinking, uh, and I think I didn't come too far away from your answer. I was thinking that Russ would say, well, the firm is, an, is, a, is a nexus of contracts. So why should we expect something as disembodied as a nexus of contracts to have an objective? Is, am, I in the, am I in the right neighborhood? Does, does, should, we, should we even think of firms as having an objective if they're so just I, a disembodied nexus of contracts? So, I mean, it's likely to have multiple objectives. Um, thanks for bringing that back because I think that was embedded in Tim's question uh, that there might be objectives behind, beyond economic uh, value. Um, and for sure that's the case. Um, and, and embedded in that question, and you know, the nexus is a, a way to look at it, a nexus of stakeholders, if you will, mm. uh, that really does mean that, this, that people, that the notion that the firm has, uh, a firm or organization has a single unified objective doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, that's, that's certainly true. Okay. Um... Uh, okay, Jing, you have a question you want to ask Russ? You can unmute and do it. Oh, yeah. Uh, hi, professors. Um, my question may be too young to naive. So, so what is your opinion on the uh, relationship between market and hierarchy uh, in terms of, especially in terms of the uh, organization of assets such as, such as the human capital assets? Um, so is there some possible explanation around this? So uh the, the boundary of the organization is actually determined by the value created by the synergies grouping together uh, certain human capital because the value can be larger than the uh, value created by those individual persons in the market uh, yeah I, I i want your opinion and also hierarchy is just the way to manage or organize those kind of capital or assets right yeah so i, I want your opinion on this yeah thank you uh, I'll, I'll do my best there. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll rely a little bit on uh, my work with Rich, uh, where we explored hybrid organizations there. Um, 
and and you know yeah he's happy i know Yay. Yay. <laughs> um that you know we we much of the transaction cost economics literature certainly not all of it but much of it has has looked at um markets and hierarchies as um um you know it's one or the other and and in most cases there's nuance where you have uh, hierarchies that have market-like aspects within them and then you have markets that have hierarchical aspects within them in terms of how authority and, and whatnot is uh, is laid out. So, um, you know, you can, um, uh, my, my work with Rich, uh, we have this, uh, this cube that you can look at that paper, the uh, both market and hierarchy. Uh, I think it's in the, in the chat already. Um, where we look at three dimensions um, that Holmstrom and Milgram brought out, uh, but they're they're brought out in the literature, uh, and the dimensions of you know defining markets and hierarchy are, you know, who has authority to make decisions, uh, how strong are the productivity incentives, um, and who owns the underlying assets. Um, so, uh, if we take these three dimensions, you know, we can acknowledge that um, it has a lot to do with how we're organizing the people, who is in charge. Um, and when we talk about these hybrid organizations, so you can outsource something and the and, and retain you know, full, um, full control. Like you could be, uh, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, you, you could retain full control, like you, you outsource some, something and uh, uh, you're, uh, directing your outsourced staff, temporary staff, if you will, as though they were employees. And that has actually created some problems with the IRS that it often works that way. Um, and so you're bringing the market inside in some sense because they're not your employees, but they kind of are, they're behaving as your employees. Or you can have outside suppliers that are investing so heavily in your routines within your organization and investing in firm specific human capital to the point where um, you know you've taken your hierarchy and and moved it beyond the organizational boundaries uh, and it's and it's external. So, um, you know, I guess what I want to convey is the, the the fuzziness of those boundaries when we think of markets and hierarchies, and to to push people to think about the nuance of what's going on. Yes, you're organizing human capital, but the um, uh, the, the clarity of it being either market or hierarchy is uh, a lot less clear than we maybe have been thinking of it as. Hope that helps. Yeah, thank you so much for your answer. So I have a follow-up question. Um, based on the like synergies can be created by like grouping people together. So the value is embedded in the relationship of all those persons or embedded in personal assets. Uh, I I also want your opinion on this question. <laughs> Where is the value embedded? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I guess my answer is yes. Um, I, I mean, there's uh, one of the problems with uh, the term human capital is that uh, it focuses on, it separates human capital from social capital. And there is no question that relational capital, social capital is, is a critical component. And in no way would I 
sort of minimize that. So, so clearly that's a piece of the picture. Understanding who to go to for knowledge or how to work with somebody is, is absolutely critical. Um, and, uh, and, and it also is, is important to understand the complementarities between the knowledge and expertise that individuals have itself. So clearly both of these things are going on uh, and both of these have potential to create tremendous value. I hope that's where you were going with it. I, I think that's where you were going with it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Jane. So we have about eight minutes left uh, and uh, out of respect for the, the traditions of the Meet the Scholars series, I will move to the lightning round questions uh, that uh, are more lighthearted and amusing than, uh, than you know, uh, detailed intellectual questions about strategic human capital. So, um, What's the what's your favorite place that you've ever visited or traveled to? Oh wow, uh, that's a tough question. I guess um, I would say that um, um, since I recently had a, a sabbatical, I would say that my home away from home is is Milan at Bocconi. Um, miss those folks. Uh, enjoyed enjoyed my colleagues there. Enjoyed my time there. Would love to go back sometime soon. Great. Um, and uh, if you could have dinner and conversation with one deceased person from the historical past, who would it be? Oh, that's tough. I'll say Herb Simon. Okay. We're, he's, he's probably our, our, all of our ancestor. <laughs> <laughs> And, and what, what kind of conversation would you have with him? What, what would you ask? Or what would you talk about? Um, help me understand my audience. <laughs> <laughs> I think DK is smiling at that one. Uh, okay. And uh, I'd love to hear what, he, what he'd have to say with how, how and where the literature has gone and how it's built on, on his work because there's just no way I don't think that he could have anticipated the multiple directions that it's gone. And, and that would be cool. Uh, another lightning round question is what do you do to relax or unwind? Do you have any hobbies or anything like that? Uh, so I have for years, I, I meditate with my guitar. Uh, you will not hear me play it, but <laughs> fortunately for you. Um, but I, when I need to take a break from uh, you know, from writing and I hit blocks like everybody else, um, I guess my my new obsession is uh, we we got a puppy a month ago. Mm. And so that has been great fun for us. Little Kelev. So uh, speaking of animals, uh, one of the questions that Samina, fed me for the lightning round is, uh, if you could be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, that's easy. Um, my, my spirit animal is a sloth. <laughs> and why? Because <laughs> I, I can be very lazy. <laughs> um, and then I guess, I think this is maybe the last question here. Uh, if, uh, if you were stranded on an island, you know, with all of your basic needs met, like food, water, shelter, et cetera, what non-essential item would you bring along to, to have with you? Hmm. 
I'd probably need music. Mm. Okay, good. Um, well, uh, I am out of questions. If anybody else has a, a last question, we have four minutes left. We can maybe try to squeeze in one more question. Just uh, unmute and speak up if you do. Be brave. Oh, gee whiz. Okay, yeah, I see something <laughs> coming into the chat window here. Okay, yeah, sure. Let's go with D DK's question. What question would Les want us to ask that would embarrass you? Les, Leslie is his wife, of course. Uh, wow. That, that's that's a tough one. I'm not sure what what uh, what she would. Uh, it's true she might like to see me embarrassed. <laughs> Maybe something about the fire. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I think she's glad that you don't see how I really am because then she would be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Samina is asking now, what's your worst habit? Worst habit? Uh, uh, maybe other than laziness. You, you already admitted to laziness, right? So, um, It has been pointed out to me that my personal style has flaws. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think, I think the worst habit is excessive overuse of Dilbert cartoons. That's probably my... It could be, although I've kind of moved on to video, so. Oh, okay. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad that that problem has solved itself then. Good. Well, um, so we, we've, uh, I guess I, I do want to say, so we've, uh, you put in a plug for the, the Carpenter Toolbox. Yes, um, please do. I, I want to say um, that the pandemic has pushed me and I'm sure all of you to sort of figure out some things in teaching that, um, so I got dragged kicking and screaming into, you know, online because it's, I'm very focused on experiential stuff, probably more than, way more than most of you. And uh, this pushed me to realize uh, some opportunities and I've tried to, you know, add some things into the toolbox that are focused on online teaching. So uh, do, do check that out. Um, and that's carpenterstrategytoolbox.com, I think, right? Dot com. Yep. Yep, and, named, uh, named for Mason Carpenter, who was my colleague who brought me to uh, to Madison in the first place. Right, and he had he had started it, and you took it over. Uh, he had been posting uh, some some tools, and uh, I he he would not have named it after himself. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll just say that. <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, and he, he's worth honoring. He's, he was a, you know, a great uh, contributor to our field and sorely missed. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a, that's, that's a toolbox that I refer to frequently, and I refer doctoral students to it as well. Uh, it's a great resource to the field, and thank you for, for building up that and, and uh, you know, developing that institution. So um, I, oh. I, I want to offer a hat tip to uh, our our colleagues in STR, but also my colleagues in SMS, and actually in all of our organizations, I think people have, have risen to the occasion uh, to, to create value for the field uh, in this pandemic that in, in a way that, that I think has been awesome. Uh, obviously, I have invested a lot in, in service to the field, 
uh, I don't want you to think that that was altruistic. I, I'm selfish. I've gotten to work with some wonderful people that way. I would encourage others to do that because you really do get to work with wonderful people who care about the field. Um, so get involved is, is part of a message that I would have to you. Uh, there are opportunities to do so. Yep, and thanks again to uh, Zhao, Gwen, uh, Tim, and, uh, um, and Samina, and the rest of the STR team for giving us this opportunity to uh, have the sequel to our conversation that we had last month. And uh, I really appreciate that. And it's been an honor and a privilege to serve as your moderator today and to get the opportunity to interview uh, my good friend, Russ Koff. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you all.